We're in Deuteronomy chapter 10. As we go through the book of Deuteronomy, we hear Moses time after time telling Israel, Obey God. Obey God that it may be well with you. And that's a good word for any of us to apply to our lives. God has shown himself strong on Israel's behalf. He's delivered them out of Egypt, out of bondage, out of slavery. And Moses calls upon Israel. He says, now, God has done so much for you. Put in place some little reminders. Do what is necessary in your own lives to be obedient to God. Moses has been giving God's commands to Israel and probably was a long, drawn-out process. Moses probably was speaking hours on end, and he's talking about obedience. Now, I try my best not to be redundant because when I deliver my well-thought-out sermons, <laughs> I do my best to be thorough, though. Uh, when I sat where you did and listened to preachers like myself, I wanted to say so many times, hey, I got it the third time, let it go, you know? But uh, we are God's people. We've been bought with a price. Therefore, God has requirements upon us as believers. We're not under the law, not under the Mosaic law, and I thank God for the new covenant of grace, and I'm sure you do too. But the God of grace, the one who shows us so much mercy and grace, also expects us to be obedient to him. Israel was to obey the law, and they had a requirement upon them to know the law. And Moses, he is diligent to repeat the law and its requirements to Israel. So let's pick up in Deuteronomy chapter 10. We'll read the first five verses. At that time, the Lord said to me, Hew for yourself two tablets of stone like the first, and come up to me on the mountain and make yourself an ark of wood. And I will write on the tablets the words that were on the first tablets, which you broke, and you shall put them in the ark. So I made an ark of acacia wood, hewed two tablets of stone like the first, and went up to the mountain, having the two tablets in my hand. And he wrote on the tablets according to the first writing, the Ten Commandments, which the Lord had spoken to you in the mountain from the midst of the fire in the day of assembly. And the Lord gave them to me. Then I turned and came down from the mountain and put the tablets in the ark which I had made. And there they are, just as the Lord commanded me. God tells Moses, hew out, chisel out two stone tablets like the first ones. And then he reminds Moses that you broke. <laughs> and I will write on these tablets the same words that were on the first tablets. An interesting little study sometime is to 
Look through scripture at the things that God wrote with his own hand. Uh, he wrote on two tablets of stone for Moses and the children of Israel. He wrote on the plastered wall there in Babylon at a dinner party for Belshazzar. And he wrote many, many tekel upharzin. And then in the New Testament, we have Jesus kneeling and writing on the ground when the Pharisees brought the woman caught in adultery to him. Jesus kneels down twice and writes on the ground. Uh, the finger of God writing the law on stone tablets. Consider that. This is not a laptop. <laughs> this is a tablet of stone, and God writes on it. And Moses was faithful to put him in the Ark of the Covenant. Now, verse 11. We'll go through 11 through, I believe it's 22. Moses, you're to uh, begin your journey before the people. You are to lead the people, Moses. And then we have Moses given commentary on verses 12 through 22 in chapter 10. And we'll read those. And now, Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you? But to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, and to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and to keep the commandments of the Lord and his statutes, which I command you today for your good. Indeed, heaven and the highest heaven belong to the Lord, your God, also the earth and all that is in it. The Lord delighted only in your fathers to love them, and he chose their descendants after them, you above all people, as it is this day. Therefore, circumcise the foreskin of your heart and be stiff-necked no longer. For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great God, mighty and awesome, who shows no partiality nor takes a bribe. He administers justice for the fatherless and of the, the widow and loves the stranger, giving him food and clothing. Therefore, love the stranger, for you are strangers in the land of Egypt. You shall fear the Lord your God, you shall serve him, and to him you shall hold fast and take oaths in his name. He is your praise, and he is your God, who has done for you these great and awesome things which your eyes have seen. Your fathers went down to Egypt with 70 persons, and now the Lord your God has made you as the stars of heaven in multitude. In other words, an innumerable multitude. Moses asks a question, a rhetorical question there in verse 12. What does the Lord your God require of you? And then Moses will answer that question. And he'll answer it for all of Israel. And he says, first, you're to fear God. The common thought among many Christians is to have a high regard or respect of God. And that is true, but it's deeper and it's more complete than that. To fear God is to have a tangible dread of God's displeasure towards myself. It is to desire God's favor. 
The fear of God, we're told, is the beginning of wisdom. Fear of God causes us to submit cheerfully to God's will and to be grateful for God's benefits to us. Fear of God will lead you to worship God. However, the society that we live in, the fear of God is all but non-existent. We're bombarded with uh, hearing the name of our Lord God taken in vain. We even hear the name of our Lord being cursed. And when I hear a person say, now bear with me here, God damn it, I cringe. I cringe. I've never gotten used to that in my entire life, that people would dare to say something like that. Yet TVs and movies make it a common term that we hear today. God wants Israel to fear him. Fear of God to Israel involved some absolute fear of God. Remember how Israel cried out to Moses, Moses, you speak to us, lest the voice of God kill us. Now that is more than respect. That is being a little bit afraid. <laughs> Therefore, do not allow the casual attitude of our society and the lack of fear of God creep into your thought process or into your conversation. I cannot stand those home improvement shows, and my wife loves to watch them. What's their favorite term? Oh my God. Oh, I say, please shut up. <laughs> we shock the Muslim world, we shock the Orthodox Jewish world by how cavalier we are as Christians even to call upon God in a personal way. You notice, what does a Muslim usually say when they talk about their God? It's almost always Allah be praised. They respect their God. And we Christians could take a lesson from that. We could take a lesson of respect from these uh, the, from these Jewish uh, brethren and, and for the Muslim as far as the way they respect God. But as Christians, we know and understand that Jesus came and he took on the form of a man to lead us to God the Father. I'm glad that Jesus came and became a man. I'm glad that he showed us the way to the Father. But yet, Jesus is probably the most disrespected part of the Godhead across our world. And we live in an evil world. Most of the world only considers Jesus a prophet, perhaps a wise teacher, that is beyond his time, but he's not God. To most people, Jesus is not God. Some keep him in the, uh, the manger scene in Bethlehem, 
Others call him the prophet or whatever. But he's your God. Is he your God? He is mine. In the Gospel of John, chapter 14, Jesus is speaking to his disciples, and he's telling them, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. All singular, all meaning it centers around him. And then he tells his disciples that no one comes to the Father except through me. And that kind of startles the disciples to a degree. And we hear Philip say in uh, one of the 12 disciples, Lord, show us the Father, and it's sufficient for us. And Jesus answers Philip, and he answers anyone who would ask that question. And let me read that to you in John 14, 9 through 11. Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long, and yet you have not known me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. So how can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father in me? The words that I speak to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does the works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father in me, or else believe me for the sake of the works that I do in and of themselves. Just believe the miracles, if nothing else, Philip. As Christians, we know Jesus is God personified. True God in the flesh. And that should cause us to respect Jesus all the more. Jesus, he's called us his friends. But we should never allow our friendship with Jesus to be casual. He never meant it to be a casual thing. He meant it as a term of endearment. I call you friends. Moses has told the people, walk in all the ways of God. Israel was not free to live as God's people any old way they pleased. And we're not free to worship our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, any old way we please. He spelled it out how to worship him. And so we want to do that in spirit and in truth. But God has spent 40 years with Israel out in the wilderness. He's been developing their character. He's been molding Israel into a people who fear him. Israel rebelled. You know the story well. They rebelled time and again. However, God has been long-suffering with Israel. Forty years worth. <laughs> and he showed them mercy. They would turn away from him, and he would show them mercy and grace. And he did this time after time. However, Israel was in Egypt 400 years. They learned the way of the Egyptians in those 400 years. They learned how to sin and how to sin thoroughly and completely. You know, when I look at my own life, though, I also appreciate 
God's long-suffering with myself as he was with Israel. So like Israel, I find myself learning to walk in the ways of God. But we have the beautiful example of Jesus Christ, a perfect example. We can find fault with one another's, and we do oftentimes, but Jesus was perfect. And we're blessed as Christians to have the example of Jesus, a sinless, perfect example. You ever get tripping out on that thought, Jesus never sinned? To sin means simply to miss the mark. There's overt sin. There's sin uh, without knowing. Jesus never sinned. That's mind-boggling. And then we have Moses, who speaks of loving God. God has a measuring stick, how he measures our love to him. And it's simply obedience. We can talk about loving God, but the proof is, are we obedient to God? Let me get you to turn to John 21, the Gospel of John, chapter 21. In this passage, we have Jesus asking Peter, and this is after Peter's three-time denial of Jesus, but we have now Jesus talking to Peter along with the other disciples. John 21, we'll look at verses 15 through 17. Now I'm going to do something for you here. I'm going to insert the proper word for love as it would have been spoken. We have three words in Greek that mean love. You have agape, a God-type love. We have phileo, like Philadelphia, brotherly love. And then there's eros, or the exotic-type Hollywood love. And Jesus is talking to Peter. And for you to get the gist of this, I'm going to use the word that is, you can get your uh, Greek concordance down and find out <laughs> this, is, this is true. I'm not just handing you so. But anyway, verse 15. So when they had eaten breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of Jonah, do you agape me? Do you love me supremely? More than these. And they probably, Jesus was probably pointing at the other disciples. And he said to him, yes, Lord. You know that I phileo you. Peter couldn't even bring himself to say that he agaped Jesus. He said, you know that I phileo you, love you like a brother. Jesus said to him, feed my lambs. Verse 16, he said to him again a second time, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love, do you agape me? And he said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I phileo you. And he said to him, Tend my sheep. Peter and Jesus are using the same different words for love there, and it's obvious. Then he said to him the third time, Simon, son of Jonah, do you 
phileo me. And Peter's grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know all things. You know that I phileo you. And Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Jesus lowered the standard of love from godlike love to brotherly love for Peter. And if we only have brotherly love for our Lord, we're to love one another. We're to take care of one another. And we should not overlook the command that Jesus gives Peter here three times. Feed my lambs, tend my sheep, feed my sheep. Same consequence, same requirement, Peter, every time. Take care of your fellow man. Peter, even if you only love me like a brother, even though your love for me is not with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength, Peter, take care of my sheep. As Christians, we will at times boast of our love for Christ. We will speak of one another and say, oh, that fellow really loves the Lord. How much do we love the Lord? Do we agape the Lord? Do we phileo the Lord? Peter could not bring himself to say, I agape you, Lord. Because Peter had denied that he even knew Jesus just shortly before this. But Jesus tells us, take care of one another. And then Moses, he's been faithful to spell out that God required that they love him, obey him, because they are his chosen people. In John 6, standing in the Gospel of John, Jesus has fed the multitude, and the people are flocking to him. Let me read you John 6, 24 through 29. When the people therefore saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they also got into boats and came to Capernaum seeking Jesus. And when, they found, and when they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus answered and said to them, Most assuredly, I say to you, you seek, you seek me not because you saw the signs, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled. You sought me out because you had full stomachs. Do not labor for food which perishes, but for the food which endures to everlasting life, which the Son of Man will give you, because God the Father has sent, <clears throat> has set his love and seal upon him. Then they said to him, What shall we do that we may work the works of God? Jesus answered and said to them, This is the work of God that you believe in him who he sent. Jesus knows the heart of man. He knows your heart. He knows my heart. And he tells this multitude in verse 26, you come after me, you seek me, 
you saw the signs, you saw the miracles, but you came after me because your stomachs were full of the loaves and the fishes. In verse 28, the multitude, they want to know then what is required of us. All right, Jesus, you've got our attention. What shall we do that we may do the works of God? And Jesus finally has them asking the right question. And he says, this is the work of God. That you believe in him who God sent. There it is. You want to please God with your life? Believe in Jesus. It's that simple. Believing, however, is not a matter of being convinced of a truth. It's not believing that Jesus is God's son. Believing when spoken of in scripture carries a little more weight to it. It's not simply being convinced, again, of a truth or in agreement with God that Jesus is God. Because there was a, one occasion where the demons spoke up to Jesus, Satan's demons, and says, We know who you are, Jesus, the Son of the Most High. In today's world, that would be believing. They know who he is. They believe that he is the Son of God. So to believe, when you speak of it in Scripture, means that you are to trust in and rely upon. That's the meaning of believe. Jesus is telling this multitude, he's told his disciples, that they are to be believing. They are to be trusting. They are to be relying upon Jesus. And that is God's requirement for man. Because it regards his son that he sent. God requires that we believe in his son, that we trust in we rely upon his son. In Romans chapter 10, verse 9 and 10, if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. Believing will cause us to confess who Jesus is. Believing will cause our hearts to be righteous, to have that right standing with God the Father. Believing is bringing a skeptical heart in line with a loving God. Believing is a choice not being convinced of facts. Believing is a choice. For we remember what Jesus said to Thomas. Thomas, 
Remember Thomas had said, unless I put my hand in his side and see the nail-scarred hands, I will not believe. Jesus said to him, Thomas, quit being unbelieving. Be believing Thomas. So, along with Thomas, every person must decide, will I be believing? And it's a willful choice. And it's an opportunity for us to put aside doubts of unbelief. If you require in your own mind or in your own heart for God to do some miracle, some special deed, perform in some way before you accept him as God, as Jesus, if you're requiring something that's above what Jesus has already done, suffering the cross on our behalf, I personally do not believe you will get your personal miracle. I don't think God's going to do that for you because God has already given us enough. He's given us salvation, and all we have to do is believe. Believing that Jesus died for our sins and rose the third day will transform your life in a moment. That's all you have to do. You will be granted salvation instantaneous if you believe what Jesus has done for you. It's that sense. And then, of course, you're going to confess your sins. That's, that's a byproduct of believing. So this morning, believe as an act of your will. Believe. Amen? Amen. Let me get you to stand. We'll close in prayer. Father God, I'm glad you made it so simple. You made our salvation so readily available that even a child can understand and believe. Lord, as the disciples ask one time, Lord, help our unbelief. We would pray the same prayer. Lord, help our unbelief. Cause us to be believing, Lord, for salvation. Heaven is our home. Eternity is too great a thing for us to be casual about it. So cause us, Lord, to have a believing heart. We pray for a believing heart, a heart that will readily accept the great things you have made available for us. So, Lord, we want to do the works of God. We want to do what you ask for, and that's be believing. So help us. Cause us to see clearly the goodness of yourself, Lord. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.